Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus marches with conviction and determination to the holy city of Jerusalem. Well, that's where this entire salvation narrative has been leading us, to its actual accomplishment in the Jewish capital. It would be the ultimate answer to the question posed by the rich young ruler and others like him, who wanted to know, What good deed man could do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said, no, friend, you don't seem to understand. Salvation can't be bought. It can't be earned. It can't be achieved by the likes of men. That's impossible. No, salvation is totally and completely God's work, and only he can bring it to fruition. That's what Jesus has been teaching the disciples on their journey to the capital city. And that's what he's going to show them after making his triumphal entrance. Turn with, if you will, to Matthew chapter 21 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. Eighteen months ago now, our exposition of Matthew began with the record of Christ's genealogy, establishing Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Mary, and the Savior of all. We marveled at his miraculous conception and his virginal birth. We heard him call to the nations of repentance call to the disciples saying, follow me. We follow Jesus from this town to that, healing wounds, 
exercising demons, calming seas, feeding crowds, proclaiming the kingdom, and teaching the truth. All the while on a collision course with destiny that could end no other way than in Jerusalem on a cross. In fact, last we heard from him, Christ was describing to his disciples the details of this suffering. Marching ahead of them toward a purpose that only he could truly understand. And now, with his arrival in the holy city, the die is finally cast. If there ever was an opportunity for Jesus to call this whole thing off, that opportunity was gone the moment he stepped foot in the capital. Surely this was the point of no return. By divine providence, Christ's arrival in Jerusalem took place during the week of the Jewish Passover, when pilgrims from all across the Roman Empire would descend upon the city, swelling its population to three or four times the normal size. And while Passover continues to be an annual observance in the Middle East, this Passover would be unlike any other before it or any after. As we take a closer look at this morning's text, let's consider what his dramatic entrance into Jerusalem tells us about the nature of Christ and the perspective of the people. First, as we see in verses 1 through 7, Jesus arrived in humility as peace giver. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and Jesus sat on the coats. Now in the ancient world, one of the prerogatives of a lord or a master was the right to commandeer a beast of burden any time he had need of it. Here we see Jesus exercise that authority, commanding his disciples to fetch a donkey and colt from a village nearby. But why a colt? Why a donkey? Why not something more bold, more regal, more magnificent and ceremonial? After all, this was his time to shine. For 30 years, there's been a hush about him. Don't tell anyone who I am. Keep these things a secret. Do not reveal my identity to others. These things were supposed to be revealed in due course. But now it's due course. 
And if it were me, I'd be announcing my presence with all the pomp and ceremony on the most impressive stallion the world had ever seen. So why, at the time of his public revelation, did Jesus come on a lowly beast like these? Well, the simplest answer is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. 500 years before Jesus rode into the holy city, Zechariah told the people to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem, for behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jewish people who lined the streets to welcome Christ on this occasion would have been very familiar with these words, and they would have immediately made this connection. Matthew certainly did, stating that the entire donkey and colt thing took place to fulfill that which was previously spoken by the Lord. And while we might be content to leave it at that, there was a reason that this was spoken in the first place. The colt and the donkey, they are not random. And Jesus is not doing it this way just because. No, the manner of his arrival tells us that he is vastly different from all of the others who have ever been given this kind of parade. You have to imagine what this picture would have brought to the minds of those who were watching. To Matthew's original audience, for sure. What a stark contrast they must have seen between the triumphal entry of Jesus and the pageantry that greeted those Roman emperors as they arrived back from war. As a symbol of their conquest, Caesar's chose a prancing horse to a procession of distinguished warriors. They brought with them shackled contingent of their conquered people and put on display all of the riches that they had taken by force. When a conquering ruler processed into the city, that's what it would have looked like. And because the people expected those same kinds of things from this Jesus, supposing he would overthrow the Romans with blood dripping from his sword, he could not arrive in a way that would perpetuate their misguided expectations. So Jesus enters riding a colt and a donkey. Symbols of humility, reconciliation, and peace. As opposed to pride, enmity, and war. And his entourage, well, they were not men bloodied in battle or gold stolen in the night. He was accompanied by fishermen called disciples and a rabble of commoners who had just been released from bondage and set free. Next to the resurrection, this was the most obvious sign that Christ could give the people that unlike the military commanders who flaunted the spoils of combat, Jesus had come to offer them peace. 
In fact, that's the latter part of the prophecy that we had just read from Zechariah. Not only that the anointed one will come mounted on a colt, but that he will speak peace to the nations. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. That he will speak peace to the nations. That his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus arrived in humility as peace giver. But not only that. He was also acclaimed by Jerusalem as king. Let's take a look back at verse 8. As the people watched Jesus enter atop the colt, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The scholars estimate that as many as 100,000 people were present to witness Jesus process through the streets of Jerusalem. Many of them, perhaps even the majority of them, shedding their outer garments and laying down large branches in recognition of royalty. It's what we commemorate the Sunday before Easter by waving palms. And while we carry on the tradition to uphold Jesus, the practice goes much, much farther back than that. In fact, when Jehu was anointed king of Israel in place of Ahab, the people carried on in much this same way. They hurried, we are told, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. And each man took his garment and placed it under Jehu on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. Now, if this thing were going on today, we would forego the jackets and the palm leaves and roll out the finest red carpet that we could find. That's the measure of admiration and reverence being given here. And to extend that level of honor and respect to this Nazarene carpenter, it spoke volumes about the people who were on hand to observe these goings on. By way of ritual, they just crowned Jesus as their king. I mean, what a way to begin a week, huh? To the applause of the masses who believe you too regal to soil your feet with the dust of the earth. And yet for all the pomp and ceremony, for all the display of pageantry, most of the people ready for him to take his throne would demand that he step down from it just a short time later. As one theologian stated, this was not the proper crowning of a monarch, but only the false coronation of the king. Uh, That is a momentary declaration of truth, just as quickly and assuredly dismissed when things don't work out later. And I cannot tell you how often this happens in the church today. Professions of faith, 
by people who have only considered the worth of Jesus for about 30 minutes in their whole life. Folks responding to an invitation who have no clue why they're raising their hand. It is the tragedy of the church in our lifetime. The attraction of millions to a temporary, fleeting, will never make it past tomorrow kind of faith. And we celebrate that like something has actually been achieved there. No. The crowds in 30 AD recognized him as king, but king of what? And for how long? Like them, John MacArthur said, sinners today will turn on Jesus when he does not satisfy their selfish whims. And though many will acknowledge his worth for a moment, most grow disillusioned quite easily, eager to dethrone him at the first sign of trouble. Yeah. Jesus arrived in humility as peace giver. Jesus was acclaimed by Jerusalem momentarily as king. And as we see in verse 9, Jesus was addressed by Israel as Messiah. As the people spread their coats and laid down their branches, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now amidst the frenzy of activity and the excitement of the moment, a song begins to ring out from the Jewish people in the crowd. Hosanna, they shouted. Save us, or quite literally, save us now, we pray. It's possible these words were set to music because the Hebrew people in attendance that day were merely quoting from one of their psalms. Psalm 118, to be exact, which was one of the Hallel praises often recited at the time of the Passover. It says this, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we've talked before about Hebrew parallelism, how it characterizes much of our Old Testament poetry. In that, we find a concept expressed quite simply at first, only to then be repeated, reinforced, or clarified by the statement that follows. Here we have one of those examples, and in it we learn what kind of salvation the people had in mind when shouting their Hosanna. It was not salvation from sin that they yearned after so much, but rather salah, prosperity, advancement, victory or success. Save us, Lord. And what I mean by that is, Bless me with an abundance in this life. 
And they clearly recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah. But they had little understanding of what the promised Messiah would come to do. Save us from our enemies? No. Save us from persecution? Not so much. Save us from the ills of our society, from all our oppressors. Save us from the Gentiles and from Rome. Well, not today, friends. That's not the kind of salvation that I offer. For though prophecy was being fulfilled right before their very eyes, it was not being fulfilled in the way that they had imagined. And so when he didn't give the people what they wanted, when things didn't turn out the way they had hoped, when he failed to provide the earthly blessings that they so longed for, it was not Hosanna or blessings that they were shouting any longer, but by Friday morning, something else. For what good is a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior? who cannot even save himself. They wanted prosperity. And as they continue singing in verse 10, we realize yet another expectation they might have had for the Christ, that he would without hesitation or delay rule from the greatest throne of them all. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or as Mark recalls it, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It appears the people thought their earthly empire was about to be established. With Christ on the throne and all of the naysayers, their subjects. And that obsession with a physical kingdom blinded them to the greater plans and purposes of Christ in the Spirit. Because the reality is, Jesus did not come to Bethlehem, Nazareth, or Jerusalem to purge people of foreign domination. He came to purge people of their sin. And there's a lesson here for us as well, friends. We spend so much of our time obsessing over the things that we can touch, the things that we can taste, the things that we can see, and we completely miss out on what is infinitely more important. Like so many in our own midst, the Israeli people were right to address Jesus as the Messiah, but they were wrong about the kind of salvation that their Messiah would bring. Do you see? Jesus arrived in humility as peace giver, was acclaimed by Jerusalem as king, was addressed by Israel as Messiah, and he was acknowledged by everyone as prophet. Take a look now at verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? 
And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The word that Matthew uses here to describe the overall feel of the city in the wake of Jesus' procession comes from the Greek seo, which means stirred, moved, concerned, or troubled. And this isn't the first time that Jesus' arrival invoked this kind of response. As it turns out, his initial advent had this very same effect on the people. Back in Matthew chapter 2, we were told how after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Why does Christ's appearance cause so much angst among the people? The question they asked in verse 10 of our text, who is this, suggests they didn't know his true identity. Oh, but they knew enough. They knew enough about this Nazarene prophet to tremble when he came near them. Because even if men are slow to bend their knee in worship, absolute holiness, ultimate authority, and infinite power will cause Every knee to knock just a bit. Especially when it arrives at your doorstep. Now I'm sure these folks were perfectly comfortable hearing about a Jesus who was out of sight and out of mind. But now he's standing right in front of them. And they're going to have to deal with him one way or another. Yeah, that will cause a disturbance. For sure. Just as it does for people today. That's why so many stay away from the church. Or at least from those churches that proclaim the truth of Jesus. Because they tremble at the thought of him. Afraid of what standing in his presence might mean. Who is this? They wondered. What has he come here to do? Well, the most natural answer to those questions is the one given by the crowd in verse 11. Who is this? Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there is no doubt the crowd answered correctly. Jesus was recognized by his contemporaries as a gifted prophet and teacher 
who had standing enough in the religious community of their day to entertain questions from the rabbis and even preach in their synagogues. Those who heard Jesus quickly recognized that his authority was present from God, that he had the ability to set forth the things of God, that he was teaching them rightly about Yahweh. And yes, he did hail from the town of Nazareth, as unlikely a place as that was. Now, there's no doubt the crowd answered correctly. The problem is they didn't answer completely. And that remains a most critical issue for men and women of faith today. Yes, friends, Jesus is a prophet but he is so much more than just that. This is God incarnate standing before you. The Holy One of Heaven in your midst. The King, the Savior, the Son. They trembled in recognition of that reality. Why would they not give voice to it now? Jesus arrived in humility as peace giver. He was acclaimed by Jerusalem as king. He was addressed by Israel as Messiah. He was acknowledged by everyone as prophet. Yet most importantly... By entering the holy city that fateful week, Jesus atoned for sin as the Lamb. Now, we have to understand as we move our way through the English version of our Bibles, being so incredibly removed in both time, geography, and culture, that much of the symbolism of Scripture is entirely lost on us today. And yet it is so pertinent to our appreciation of Christ and his purpose that we must continually strive to understand it as the word of God would intend. And for all that took place at Christ's triumphal entry, there is relevance far beyond what's actually been stated. You see, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of their Passover particularly on the 10th month of the first month, 10th day of the first month of their Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan. The start of Passover and the same day that the law required people to choose for themselves their paschal lamb. God decreed this very thing to Moses, saying in Exodus chapter 12, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And on the tenth of this month, they, that is all the people of Israel, are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. It was to be an unblemished male whose sacrifice would be big enough so that everyone in the house could partake and be satisfied. 
And in comes the peace giver, the king, the Messiah, the prophet Jesus. On the very day when every Jew in the place was looking for the one whose blood would atone for their sin. He comes riding on the colt and the donkey as if to say, here I am. Choose me. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And he has been sacrificed for you. Will you still not receive him? Will you still not bend your knee? Just as real as those onlookers in Jerusalem so many years ago. You have the opportunity of a lifetime today to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time or to receive Jesus Christ anew as the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of your sin. Choose me, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to texts so very familiar to us and we rush on by so often. Familiar with the words and the setting and the scene and believing that we know these things. We've heard them before. But Lord, I pray that as we have walked through this text again this morning, that you've impressed upon us something new, something deeper, something more real and more long-lasting. That unlike the crowds, we wouldn't give you momentary attention, temporary accolade, that that would be rooted deep in our hearts this day and tomorrow and for all eternity. Help us, Father, to appreciate your Son as the Messiah, as the King, as a prophet, and as the Lamb you sent to slaughter, that we might be covered by his blood. That's what Passover was all about, Lord. And at just the right time, you ushered him into your holy city to announce his intention to suffer and die in our place. Help us, Lord. Lay down our coats. Roll out the red carpet. More than that, to lay down our lives 
in recognition of that most incredible of all realities. And let us continue to praise the name of the one who came to be our Passover lamb, the name of your son, Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray now. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 